We want to be deliberate about how we're capitalizing the company over time, such that, because we didn't want, it's like we didn't want it to count as our seed round because we knew that we would need space in order to find product market fit and start getting traction before we wanted to be held to the standards of somebody raising a seed round. Should we just dig right in, get right into it? Yeah, let's cool. jump in. All right. All right, so. Uh, on this episode of the podcast, we've got Maya Bittner. Maya is a serial entrepreneur, investor, dare I say social media influencer. Uh, in 2012, Maya founded Roxbox, a subscription jewelry company, uh, later founded Pinch, a financial services company in 2016. She's also an advisor to Parcel B, an investment fund. Uh, supporting startups founded by her alma mater, Olin College. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate having you on. Welcome. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so we had to sort of uh, wing this because I was going to be in New York and uh, obviously the coronavirus thing like couldn't come down, but appreciate the flexibility. And um, yeah, this is, good. this is cool. We're using Zoom for this and it uh, should be fun. I'm trying to embrace our new like future of remote work. Right. Totally. Totally. It's, it's, it's like accelerating that, that trend. Two feet in the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good, it's a, you know, it's a good way to learn things. Totally. Um, all right. Did I get the timeline right there? Roxbox in 2012, Pinch in 2016. Yeah. I'm actually impressed. <laughs> um, cool. So, how did you get into Roxbox? Like what made you want to start that company? Yeah. So I actually kind of tripped my way into Roxbox in many ways. So Roxbox was founded in 2012 by Megan Rose and it was her idea. So Roxbox is a jewelry rental service. Um, it lets women try out lots of different types of jewelry. You can wear it around. You can buy what you fall in love with. Um, and be confident that you know you're going to love that. And so it was Megan's idea, um, kind of born out of like years of expertise in consumer consulting and things like this. And she really saw a need for um, women to be able to to buy jewelry like this. And today it's like a very high commitment thing in order to buy jewelry. Um, and you might buy earrings and find out that they're too heavy and you never like wearing them. So it was totally her idea. She started the company. She incorporated it. Um, I met her quite randomly. So I was looking for a job. Random Connection introduced us. We got coffee. And she said, she was like, seems great. Like, would love to hire you as the first employee of Roxbox. Awesome. And so that's how I met her. And I just thought, I was like, this seems like a fine idea. It seems like a fine company. I'm happy to help this woman. Like, get her company up off the ground. Um, and then it was only after working together for a couple months that we found we worked really, really well together. Um, and so that after a couple months, she was like, Maya, you've been here since the beginning. You know, I want to invite you to join on as my co-founder and CTO. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I, I apologize. I didn't mean to stiff her of that credit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, no yeah, worries. Cool. And it's a funny, it's a funny situation, right? Because I'm a co-founder of Roxbox at, sort of as the title, you know, but it was really started by Megan. And then. So, so you guys raised some money at Roxbox. I think I, I saw, uh, an $8.7 million series a 
And then I, what I saw was 12.3 million in total, but what were you involved with that fundraising process? And if so, you know, talk about how that, how that went down. Yeah. You know, I actually wasn't very involved. So the amount that I was involved, like really how we split it is Meg did the fundraising while I was kind of like back in the office running the business. Mm -hmm. And so, and then trying to right, provide emotional support for Meg through that process, because a lot of it in the very early days, it was, I mean, it was brutal. I think having two female founders, I think a product that is designed for women, um, it's just not what San Francisco likes to see. It's certainly not what they wanted to invest in. In 2012, that was sort of the crash of the like subscription box trend. And so we really had to come out of the gate and be like, no, this isn't a subscription box. It's not like a random box of junk that you get every month that clutters up your house. Like we're really doing something different here. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was really very, it was very difficult um, for us to raise money. And it felt like the bar for us was so much higher than for everyone else. And we had, cause we had so much enthusiasm. We had so many customers, we had so much revenue. Um, and, and it was, the DVCs were so dismissive. They would be like, you'd be like, well, like I remember when we raised our seed round, we had like 2000 customers paying us every month. And these were like, well, what if you had just gotten like your 2000, like closest friends to sign up for this? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I am really not that popular. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So you mentioned it was kind of the, the fall of the subscription box company. Were you guys reaching out to VCs? who you knew specifically were interested in that space or like interested in e-commerce or like, how did you decide who to reach out to? Yeah. So we had a huge spreadsheet that basically it divided all the investors up by, well, it was every, it was basically every investor they would ever heard of. And then our top targets were ones that we knew invested in whatever stage we were raising at and in our verticals, so like in consumer in CPG, kind of in that category. Um, and those were our top targets. And then after we had our top targets, we would sort of troll through LinkedIn and other means to try and see who could, we could get connected to. And we we're always really focused on like, who is the best partner at this firm to hear this deal? And then how are we going to reach them? Awesome. Um, so you raised a seed round you had already gotten 2000 customers at that point, And then you guys must have grown that company. Are you still involved with Roxbox today or no? I'm really not involved at all. You know, it's like sometimes I go to the office for happy hour and, and I say hi to people. Um, but it, it's actually been, and it's a really funny feeling to go to the office um, and be like, Oh my God, I hope you're all still working hard. Like I work so <laughs> hard to, you know, to bring this to life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And How big further, is the company now? Um, I would guess like 40 or 50 people. Okay. Wow. But the and really you interesting. You don't do the manufacturing, do you? It's just, that's just like retail. Um, so that's a split. Roxbox does some manufacturing. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. But, um, it's also like I left Roxbox in 2016. So that was now what, almost 17, 18, 19, 20, almost four years ago. And so in Silicon Valley, like people don't keep jobs for much longer than a couple of years. And so at this point, it's like the only person I still know at the company is Meg because everyone that worked there when I was there has also left. Yeah. 
Okay. So Meg, Meg still is the CEO operating the company. Like yeah, how, it's cruising. What, what did your exit look like? I mean, did you have equity in the company or? Yeah, I did. And I still do. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and the exit was, it was, it was interesting. It took a long time. It was like very gradual. And basically I, um, systematically sort of hired myself out of a job. So I was running as a CTO and I was running the engineering team. And I mean, CTO in the early days, just a very fancy title for being the only engineer. Yeah. I built the original system, um, which is both our consumer facing website. And then much more extensively, we had a custom admin site that ran everything, gifts, coupons, customers, shipments, subscriptions. Uh, but I hired a VP of engineering. And so he ran the engineering team. And then I went over, um, kind of revamped our operations process. I love operations. We did our own fulfillment in-house. Um, so it's quite extensive. I like revamped that, hired in a VP of operations. Um, and then I was running like member experience and I was responsible for LTV and NPS. Um, and that was much easier. It's like, I mean, people love, they love the Roxbox product. So that was like a much easier job. And then I just sort of like phased out of that role. Nice. How, how important were those metrics for you guys? I know, like, I feel like both are fairly like challenging to calculate in some ways, like a lot of metrics for a business like this are super easy, right? Like, you know, website sessions or whatever, like impressions, whatever it is, super easy to calculate, super easy to get those two lifetime value. And, uh, and that promoter score, I feel like are a little bit more challenging. How did you manage that? Yeah, this, it's an interesting question you ask. I think people don't really recognize um, a lot of these are quite tricky to calculate. And we had um, churn was our other factors. That's quite tricky to calculate because we would have, you know, we would have X percent churn and like these members who leave every month. But yeah, okay. what we really ended up seeing is we ended up seeing um, that people would be very like active Roxbox members they would be paying their subscription and they'd be sending the joy back and forth and leaving people they'd be really into it for like six months. And then life would get busy and they're like, this is a lot. I can't deal with it. And they would turn, but then they would come back in six months. And we saw that kind of again and again. And so it's like, well, what is your churn if somebody is there for six, six months and then they leave for six months and then they're, they're back again, you know? Um, yeah. It's not the same you know, when you think about a SaaS company and it's like, oh yeah, we have all these people signing up and then X percent of them leave every month and never come back is the implied answer there. It's like they've gone yeah. to a competitor and they're gone forever. So yeah, we really, we kind of struggled with that. Um, but we were always super, super data driven. So NPS, that one was easy. We actually used this great tool called Delighted, which um, did our surveying for us. And then, um, and then we were able to like split that by where do they live and how old they are and what jewelry have they gotten and what's their shipping time and what's their, you know, all the different things to try and like pinpoint where are the problems and the experience and who is Roxbox yeah. best for. Smart. Yeah. And then LTV. Um, yeah, that was actually, I mean, we just looked at, it's like, okay, so we took our average churn and, and our purchase and our subscription revenue and just kind of like sorted it out. And it was very like, LTV, obviously you, you kind of need somebody's lifetime to know, but we could changes that were made in the first month of someone's experience had a really big impact on LTV. So we were able to iterate pretty quickly and change it. Very cool. And you, you mentioned that with net promoter score, you were able to sort of segment out like 
you know, shipping and all the, you know, what jewelry they bought, et cetera. Like what played the, what had the biggest impact on that in terms of the customer experience? Like, was there something in particular, like a certain email segment or like shipping time or, you know, geography that was like, we know this person is going to be like a, a promoter, like based on historical data. Yeah. There's a bunch of, um, bunch of interesting stuff. So shipping time was definitely a big issue for us. And one of the things that, so, and I was really on this campaign around shipping time for a long time. And it was interesting because, um, I think choosing your right KPIs is critically important. And so when I first started, you know, I saw these NPS comments, like people are complaining about shipping time. It's like, it was something like 80% of our negative NPS comments mentioned shipping time or something. It's like clearly. What was it at the time? How, how long was it taking you guys to ship out? I don't know. Probably average you would. Um, well, the way I always measured it is not in terms of outbound shipping time, but in terms of how long is it from the first scan we get of your return shipment until your next shipment is delivered. So kind of the whole turnaround time. Got it. Okay. Yep. Cause that encompasses like some amount of like return shipping the what we were doing in the warehouse and then the outbound shipping. And that was usually about five days. Oh, that's not bad. It's not bad. I mean, there's a lot of things but, happening. But we're getting a lot of pushback on that. Right. Which also, like which that. also makes sense, right? Like you put it in, it's like, if you put it in on a Friday, you know, cause it's also like five business days. So if you put it in a Friday, you're probably getting it the next Friday. Feels yeah. like a long time. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, what, what challenges did you have growing that business? I mean, you, you spent four years there, you guys grew really fast. Like what, what were the biggest challenges you faced? I mean, it's nonstop challenges. I think anyone who's a part of a, a rocket is like nonstop. So it's like, um, growth was happening really quickly, but for us, you know, we worked with this really tangible product. And so we would get like, we would be in Oprah magazine and then, um, we would run out of jewelry, right? We would, we didn't have enough inventory to fulfill these orders. And so we were constantly kind of like putting people on a wait list and taking them off the wait list and starting their subscription and charging that. And like, just all, you know, this whole balancing act. And we were always very, like, we we're very um, limited in resources. So it's not like we could just go stock up on a ton of jewelry that we didn't need. And so um, it was super limited on resources. We, it was always kind of a scramble balancing like growth and inventory. And we would have, I mean, we would have all, it's like just anything that could go wrong did go wrong. You know, it's like we had, um, I remember one time, so we were running fulfillment out of downtown San Francisco for a long time, which is not recommended, but that's what we were doing. Um, and one time we got, it's like a pallet of our packaging materials delivered. And there was like some miscommunication with the company and they, so they just delivered all these pallets on the sidewalk in downtown San Francisco. And then it started raining and it's like raining on our boxes, right? Like on the rocks boxes. Wow. So we just had this scramble. It's like every person in the office was like carrying these boxes of boxes into the office. And we're trying to like drape plastic over them. So they stay dry. And like, it was just this like whole crisis. And there's a crisis like that. I mean, like every week, you know, it's like every week something's going wrong. Uh, you mentioned Oprah was PR uh, an effective marketing strategy for you guys, or how did you fuel, fuel your growth? So I don't think PR actually was a big part of our growth. Like really it's like Instagram. I mean, Instagram pulled so hard for us 
Friend referral was huge. That was like the majority of our new signups are from friend referral. Did you incentivize that at all? Or that was just we organic? did. So we gave, you got $25 in purchase credit if you referred a friend and they got their first month free. Um, and I think jewelry, it's like, and this like new way of consuming jewelry, like it's sort of a natural conversation vector for people. Like, and it's kind of a fun thing. You get the box, you get to try it on. You ask people if they like it. It's like, should you keep it? Should you not? Um, so it really naturally lended itself to, um, to front referral. So that was the biggest thing. PR, I honestly think it's like that what helped our brand more it's like look we're like a legitimate company we were in us weekly and oprah and red book right and like we can show all the like logos and all the articles um but i don't think it actually drove growth as much as as much as like friend referral did or instagram so you were the the head of engineering for a long time were you testing a lot of this stuff on your website i mean how much how important was your website and and you know how you structured that to the business yeah, we did do a lot of tests on the website. Um, we did a ton of A-B testing, optimizing for conversion. We did, and we did some rebrands and, you know, we needed to rede- redesign the website every so often. Um, so like, and we found, I mean, so many things were just kind of like, I don't know if counterintuitive, but counter to the prevailing wisdom that I hear on Twitter and things like that. So yeah. like, one of the standard conversion things is like, oh, you want to make it as easy as possible for people to sign up, right? As short as possible. So like we had a style quiz um, that was like, tell us what type of jewelry you want to wear, like choose the pictures that you like, whatever, sign up, and then we're going to send you jewelry. And what we found is that conversion, so we made it as short as possible. We tested all these different things with style survey. Conversion actually went up when we had a longer style survey that asked people more questions. And I think there's a couple of reasons that might be. Now, one is unlike filling out a form with like your credit card information, your billing address and stuff like that, the style survey is fun. Like it's a fun thing to do to look at like pretty pictures and be like, "Mm, I like this outfit and not at this outfit. And like, it's a fun thing to do. So people like it. They like doing it. The other thing is I actually think that it built trust. I think if we didn't ask people enough questions, they would be like, how can I know that you have jewelry that I like or that I'm going to like what you send me? Like, all I told you is that I prefer bracelets to rings. Like, I have no idea if you're going to send me stuff that I like. And so I think it actually built trust in the service and it was a fun thing to do. And that's why we saw conversion go up with like a longer style survey. Okay, cool. All right, I'll let's move on to pinch here and and we'll kind of jump around. But uh, I know that you raised some money for Pinch too. You also had a co-founder. Um, as you have sort of raised that money, how have you guys structured your cap table? How much equity have you given at different stages of funding? And what's that been like? Yeah, sure. So when we first raised money, so we raised 900K um, and we raised that. So we had two institutions in, Homebrew and Collaborative Fund. And then the rest was Angels. And Homebrew really led the round. They set the terms. Um, It was a price round. Homebrew mostly, like, I think they only do price rounds. Um, And we did, so we raised 900K. I mean, this is a little bit foolish in hindsight, but at the time what we were thinking is we were like, we really don't, like, we want to be deliberate about how we're capitalizing the company over time such that, because we didn't want, it's like we didn't want it to count as our seed round because we knew that we would need space 
in order to find product market fit and start getting traction before we wanted to be held to the standards of somebody raising a seed round. So we wanted to raise, it's like, we wanted to raise less than a million dollars, make sure it wasn't a seed round. Um, Homebrew is like backed us from day one and we worked really, really closely with them and they were amazing supporters. So they led the round and set the terms. Um, and then frankly, it was mostly, most of the other people were friends or, um, like former, former coworkers and people who had worked with us before. And honestly, like, I mean, I'm so flattered that they invested because so much of it was just a bet on my co-founder Ducker and I as people and like, not even on the business or the business idea. Uh, so how much research did you do into that market? And I know it's, it's FinTech. So there's like a lot of regulation and, and complexity there. Like how much market research did you do? And you know, why did you ultimately choose that? What made you yeah. want to get into that space? So we started pinch and what we wanted to do is we wanted to, uh, help Americans become more financially stable. Right. And we wanted to use software to do that. Like, I think there's a bunch of ways you could make Americans become more financially stable. I think um, stuff like Lambda school and job training is a really good way to do it. But we knew that our background was like building consumer software. And so that was just how we were going to do it. Um, and the specific scenario that we were most interested in addressing was this thing that happens. It's like most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They're very on the edge. And they might have a financial shock happen to them. Say their car gets towed. They can't pay to get their car out of the tow yard. And mm -hmm. so they don't, but then they're not driving to work. And then they really don't have $400. And then the fees are stacking up and it kind of spirals out of control. And so when we look at that situation, we were like, shoot, like if somebody just had that $400 right at that time to go get their car out of the tow yard, then they could keep going to work. They keep making money. They could like, you know, it, it becomes much more easy um, to kind of like stay, keep your head above water. And so we dove in. Originally, we thought it might be an insurance company. Insurance was also very hot in the spring and summer 2016. as sort of like the next frontier for fintech companies. Um, and so we dove into insurance. So we became licensed insurance agents and brokers. We did our training. We took the tests. We like dove in. We talked to lawyers. We talked to regulators. We talked to people. Like we really dove into learning everything. Like, all the ins and outs of insurance. And we ended up designing this um, kind of a modified renter's insurance. So property casualty insurance product that um, with a product manager, which is a, it's so funny, product manager is a job title in the insurance world. That means a very different thing than product manager in the software world. But we were working very closely with them that manage insurance products. Um, and, and so like, Dove in to design this product that I think, I mean, it's like, it's very academically interesting. I think it's like, doesn't fit well with consumer behavior. Um, but I think it's cool. What we did is it was an insurance product. You pay like $20 a month. And what that does is it gives you access to a low interest line of credit. In the case of one of these, we had a list of named perils. So it was like, if you have to, if you have to go, if you go to the ER, if you have um, your car get towed, if you have like any of these following things happen, then we would pay for it and you would just pay us back over time. And so that was a kind of like the first product that we, we kind of jumped in and we designed and we thought this would be a really good solution to Americans' financial stability. 
Awesome. Um, talk about the roles that you and your co-founder play or played. I know that you recently got acquired. Like we'll talk mm -hmm. about that later, but talk about the roles that you guys played. Yeah, we were really kind of doing the same things. Um, and so it was very different from Roxbox in that way where we had really like split domains. Um, he and I worked, I mean, we, we kind of we did the same thing all the time. Um, we, like we did, it's like we did all of our fundraising meetings together. We did um, like all of our everything meetings together. Um, we were really joined at the hip for years um, and worked like really, really closely trying to sort this stuff out. He's one of my best friends. We've been um, best friends since college. And so, and we would even like, we were still, we were still friends and that was separate, which was funny. Like we would be working together literally all day, um, every day. Right. And then like, we would go out to brunch as friends on the weekends and like hang out and chat. And so that was super fun. But yeah, we both did. He actually kind of like led the tech side more for this company. Um, and he was certainly more involved in like, we had a mobile app and he's like, he's a product guy and he's very much a mobile app guy. And so he definitely led like the mobile app um, side of the business. I did some more stuff with kind of like operations and business development, but we were really split, split roles. Yeah. And he was uh, a friend of yours from Olin. Yeah. How long were you there? What, what, what was that time frame? Yeah. So I went to Olin. So I started Olin in 2006. Um, and then I took some time off to work for internet startups out in San Francisco and I actually went back to Olin and ended up graduating in 2011. Okay. Awesome. Just, and then you went right into Roxbox after that. Yeah. Uh, talk about Olin. It seems like a pretty cool school based on what I know about it, but what made you choose that college? Olin is wild. Yeah. It's a wild school. So it's very small. <laughs> There's only 75 students per year. Um, okay. At the time I went, they didn't charge tuition. So it's free school. Um, it's only engineering. So they only, they, they, there's three possible degrees that they can issue a bachelor of science in general engineering, um, bachelor of science in mechanical engineering or a bachelor of science in electrical and computer engineering. So those are the only degrees that they have at the school. Um, it's brand new. The first class graduated in 2002, I believe. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's totally crazy school. I went, so in high school, I actually, I was not that excited about going to college. I really didn't like high school. Um, I wanted, yeah, I was just like, thought it would be very, it seemed so expensive. It seemed so expensive. I could not believe how expensive it was. Um, but everyone was just like signing up. And I mean, now we have this like student loan crisis, but I was like, so expensive. Plus I was trying to encourage people. I was like, you're not only paying these fees, but you're losing out on four years of income for working. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Couldn't um, agree more. Yeah. That opportunity cost. And I was yeah. like kind of over formal education. I thought I learned more on my own. And so yeah. what I wanted to do is I wanted to apply to uh, MIT, Stanford and Harvard, get into those schools and then not go to any college. It was kind of my plan. And so for then the I cache. Could, for the cachet. So I could tell people like, oh yeah, like I got into those schools, but like didn't want yeah. to go. Because it seemed like yeah. the right balance to me of like getting some of the social state. I was like, it's like cost like sixty dollars to apply to college or something. I was like, you get most of the credit if you just say you were accepted. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And it's sixty bucks instead of like two hundred thousand dollars. 
Anyway, I got this pamphlet from Olin and it looks so different. Like I had gotten all these shiny college brochures from, from all these other colleges. One from Olin was like, it was designed, it was like duct taped together and had like coffee stains and stuff like that. Um, and it said, so the cover was, what's the one thing cooler than getting into Harvard, Stanford and MIT? And I was like, how did these guys know my plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you open up, it says turning them all down to help build the Olin College of Engineering. And I was like, oh, and they were like, we think education is broken. Come help us fix it. It's free. And I was like, super aligned in lots of ways. Yeah, like totally on yeah. board. Awesome. So you, you clearly have like a connection to Olin. I know you started Parcel B or you were involved with Parcel B. I think you're an advisor there. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So a big fan of Olin. I think Olin, you know, it's so funny because it's an engineering college, but in their quest to kind of like revolutionize engineering education, I actually think they're creating amazing founders, right? Like their critiques of engineering education and of engineers was that they're coming up with the same solutions, like to the same problems. They're thinking inside the box. They're not good at communicating. They don't know how to like fit their ideas into a context of a greater world or design products that people actually use, like all this stuff. And I'm like, this is entrepreneurship and this is being a founder. And so I really believe that. And plus they have deep technical expertise. And so I really think that Olin students are like disproportionately amazing founders. And so that's why I helped start Parcel B, um, which is an investment group that invests in colleges founded by Olin alumni. And working with that, I work very closely um, with the school in a number of ways. Um, I was actually just, so I'm now on Olin College's Board of Trustees um, starting this year, which is exciting to like um, provide some governance for the college. And yeah, I'm very passionate about, about the school and about like how it can continue to innovate. I think Olin really invented a lot of things, but they were such great ideas for engineering college that we like everyone adopted them quite quickly. And now it's just the way we teach engineering. And I think Olin needs to continue to push the envelope and to continue to kind of like think about how to be global citizens and, and how engineers can, can better fit into the modern world. And I'm excited to play a role in that. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have any, uh, like portfolio companies there that you're excited about that you want to give a little shout out to? Yeah, certainly. So a couple of companies, so a new company called NanoGrid that is started by an Olin founder. And what NanoGrid is doing is basically if you have an electric car, um, they optimize or any, anything, but like really it's best for people who have uh, electric cars. They optimize when your car gets charged based on your soul, like your rates of electricity. So if there is like, you have cheaper electricity in the middle of the night and more expensive electricity like during the day or things like that, they calculate all that so that you can charge up your car when electricity is cheapest and they base it on your usage and things like that. So um, that's a brand new company, really exciting. They actually have some like big contracts in the works. And so they're doing quite well. Um, another company is Skydio and they make these very cool like, hobby drones that follow you around with HD cameras and film you like running and biking or snowboarding um, and create these like incredible videos. And they just, they have like this technology that can track you like no matter what. Um, and it's like quite impressive. Yeah. That's super cool. Uh, Maya, what advice would you give to a young founder with an idea and how would that advice change as the business evolves? 
Yeah. I think my advice is um, like being a founder. I mean, being a founder is such a like high social status position right now. Um, And it's very, so it can be very distracting. And I think that, so I think there's a lot of people who want to be founders like for that social status. They think that's what it means to be successful in their careers and things like that. Um, That's fine. Like I don't, right. Like I wanted to be accepted to Harvard for this, that like, I get it. This is how people work. It plays a role. But my advice is always to like very closely interrogate like what you are trying to achieve and what would make you happy. Right. Because I think for some people it's like, for some people, you know, they have this idea and they just want it to exist in the world and they don't care if anyone knows that they made it or not. That's fine. For some people, like they mostly want the status. That's also fine. Like it's all fine, but just figure out what you're going for because the activities that you do as a founder of a company or like somebody starting an idea are going to be really different. And it's very easy to mix up. Like you, if you're doing it for status and you think you need to like sit in your garage for 16 hours a day, like building something like maybe that will get you there, but maybe not. And if you're doing it for right, like it's just very easy to mix up those activities. So I'd figure out your incentives and then right. Surround yourself with people on Twitter or wherever who are sort of aligned and follow their advice. Cause like there's so many different destinations that you can be pointed towards as a founder. If you're not clear about where you're going, you're very unlikely to get there. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, what do you wish you had known or implemented sooner than you did in, in either uh, Roxbox or Chime or Pinch? Sorry. I want to talk about that acquisition also. Right, right, right. Yeah, no. And everybody mixes up the names because it's like they're like a one syllable yeah. verb. It's just they're like weirdly too close. Um, <laughs> so what do I wish I knew earlier? It's so hard because you know, in some ways it's like, I feel like if I had known things, like I value the lessons that it's like, I learned stuff the hard way. And when you learn things the hard way, like, damn, do you not ever make that mistake again? And so it's almost like, it's like, well, I'm glad that I learned everything the hard way. If I had just avoided those hard lessons, I don't, I don't know, (laughs) you know? Um, What were some of those lessons with that? Oh my God. What were some of those lessons that you can share? Well, everything's a lesson, right? I mean, so at at Pinch, right? So we did the insurance product and then we're like, people don't like this. Then we ended up, um, our product was we're reporting rent payments to the credit bureaus so people could build their credit score just by paying their rent. Yeah. Because what we really found is that what people needed was access to affordable credit. Millennials don't have that. They have the worst credit score of any generation did at their age because student loan crisis, they prefer debit cards or credit cards and they're buying houses and cars later and less often. Right. So all the confluence of reasons, um, terrible credit scores, they don't have access to affordable credit. So we wanted to build that. We, my focus, and I was very deliberate on this. So Roxbox, people loved Roxbox. Right. And we never did. I mean, and Megan just like, we tweaked it a little bit, but really like, Roxbox today is the product that Megan designed in 2012 and people love it. Okay. Yeah. And I saw that like how valuable that was for us to have. It's like to have that out of the gate. And so at pinch, I was like, we need to find product market fit because like you can't force it. And if you have something that people love, like they'll tell all their friends about it. It's easy to hire for it. It's easy to raise money. You can like all, everything is solved. Yeah. And so super, super focused on that. And even I was like, 
and it's funny like people they're like oh you guys are technical like you must be building this really technical product and i was like we're building this like on Airtable and like no code solutions like we should just hack it together because it's not worth investing in a technically sound product if you don't know if consumers are going to like it you should wait until you know they like it and if you have something that people like you're going to have the resources like you can raise money you can hire a team you can rebuild it like you can make it good but like don't over engineer so i was on this drumbeat and to be honest, like it was a huge mistake um, because what I did is I really focused on finding product market fit, but at the expense of having a good business model. And so I was too narrow in sort of like my definition of what product market fit meant. And so at the end of the day, I mean, Pitch was hugely popular. A gazillion people signed up. It was on Lifehacker. We were like one of the top, we were the number one trending downloaded like FinTech app and the Google Play Store, like all these things, right? Um, but to say we had product market fit is sort of like saying that handing out free t-shirts on the street corner has product market fit, which is like, yes, people will like it, but that everyone doesn't mean Everyone wants these. <laughs> everyone wants these. That doesn't mean it's a business. Free, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like potentially a charity. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, that was, that was probably like the biggest, like deepest mistake with pinch is that we really ended up in this place. I was like, if we have product market fit, it solves everything. But I kind of define product market fit as people like it, not people like it and are willing to pay for it in a way that makes a venture scale business. Yeah. Okay. Um, so with Pinch, you, you made that pivot from like a, a credit financer almost to like a, a credit bureau reporting partner. Um, and then at what point were you acquired by Chime and how, how did that go down? Yeah, so we were acquired by Chime in the summer of 2018, and for a couple of different reasons. So to be honest, that conversation had been kind of happening for, for a while. So Chime is also a homebrew-backed company. Okay. And so I met one of the founders of Chime, Ryan, at like a homebrew portfolio founder dinner, and he and I just totally hit it off. I feel like we have very similar backgrounds in terms of Silicon Valley. We had worked for like competing people search engines back in 2007. Um, we we're both of engineering backgrounds and we kind of just like jammed on everything Silicon Valley. Plus we were had a very similar mission to our company. So just helping Americans live financially healthier lives um, and a very similar customer demographic. And so we like, really jammed on that. And at that time he was like, we should join forces and just do this together. And so this was much before the acquisition happened, but I think it was always kind of in our, the back of our heads is like, well, maybe we should, you know, join forces uh, and, and bring this to life. And so then where we ended up with pinch is we were like, okay, we have this product, like people love it. Um, we don't have a great way of monetizing it but we know that like it helps with growth and like, and things like that. And so that's when we are like, well, maybe we should pick up that conversation with Chime again because right. It's like Chime has an incredible business model. One of the things we always really struggled with, cause we were trying to, we wanted to find a good business model for pinch. And so we looked at like 20 different ideas, right? Like, could we get lenders to send people who don't acquire for, like a, um, qualify for loans. Could we have them send their rejects to us and we increase our credit score and then the lenders give us a kickback when they can make the loan. Could we like, right. It's like, could we charge people directly? Could we sell the data to hedge funds? Could we write like, we looked at all kinds of things. Um, 
And Chime has just, I mean, it's really the most elegant business model in the world, which is that it mostly runs on interchange revenue. Interchange fees are the fees that merchants pay to card issuers to accept debit and credit cards. And so Chime can offer a free product to its customers and still make a ton of money by providing a great service to them. So that really appealed to us. So we picked up that conversation with Chime again. um, And what we did is we brought our software around reporting data to the credit bureaus to them and our relationships um, with the credit bureaus, which are like somewhat opaque institutions to work with. Um, And then at Chime, we built their credit reporting credit card. And so Chime now has like a 100% secure credit card that reports payments to the credit bureaus so that the Chime customer can build their credit score without taking on any risk or without having to apply to anything, um, which is very much the same as what the Pinch product was doing. So was Chime, is Chime acting as like a payment processor right now? Is that, you know, they have a credit card, but you mentioned they're also in that interchange fee space. Yeah. Are they processing payments or what? Well, we work, we have a, um, we have a card processor okay. that we work with. So what we, I mean, what we are is we work, we're like a technology layer that sits on top of bank accounts. And so the banks that we work with and like we issue cards kind of on their behalf. And so then when the merchants pay that interchange fee, um, it's split between us and that issuing bank, which is just kind of the, like kind of a normal, normal setup. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, when you, when you guys were acquired by Chime, did you get some equity in Chime? Like, yeah. are you, yeah. You're, okay, cool. Nice. But we got equity um, and then the pinch investors got equity in Chime as well. Nice. Awesome. Uh, Maya, what's the worst advice that you've ever been given or heard given to someone else in terms of business and entrepreneurship? Worst advice. Um, Oh, that's a hard one too. I would say that like, I think um, the worst advice is, you know, because it's one of those, it's also, it's also good advice, but I think the worst advice is really around, um, we have kind of this idea of founders, it's like that they will never quit, right? Never stop, they will work. And so there's a lot of people that I see starting companies and they're like, I am never gonna stop working on this. But they're doing that in the face of, like their product does not have product market fit, right? Of any kind, business or like otherwise. And so um, I look at these people and they're like, they're like, yeah, but I will never stop working on this. And it's a tricky one because like, well, it's like, if it makes you happy to work on it, it's fine. But if people have these like ideas that somehow this product is going to go from something that no one likes to use to something that's really big and really popular and everyone likes to use. And I actually, so one of the things, you know, I've started advising and investing in, in lots of startups. Um, and I used to, when I started doing that, I was always very supportive and I was like, I'm so excited trying to like, make this change in the world. Now, I often tell people, I'm like, I don't think you should work on this anymore. I think you should like give up or I tell them, I don't think you're going to like being a founder. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think like the worst advice is sort of the like, keep working no matter what. It's like, if it's not serving you, if people don't like your product, like do not keep working no matter what. It's like not a great use of anyone's time. Yeah. Interesting. 
Um, what What do you think has been your greatest accomplishment thus far? Mm, my greatest accomplishment is easy. So um, it's like a lot of the engineers that I hired at Rockstar. So I'm like so proud and at Pinch. Like I've so I'm so proud of the engineers that I've hired, and in part, like I have hired a ton of engineers. Um, into their first engineering jobs. So they were going to say you have an interesting hiring philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. About that. I do. So I'm very like, I'm very against like technical interviews. Um, and my big thing for, yeah, well, so, and we didn't do, so we didn't do interviews at all at pinch. Like what we did at pinch is to apply for a job. People sent us something that they had built. And so that could be, it could be like a finished product. It could be an app. It could just be code. They could send us a link to their GitHub, like kind of in whatever form they wanted. Um, And then if we were interested in that, we did is we invited them to do like a short-term consulting project with us. And we worked together to build some new feature or something in our app. Um, Just based on that process, if we were both excited about the idea of working with each other, we would hire them. And so through this process, I hired a bunch of people that I think, you know, they don't look like your ideal engineering candidate. And I hired a ton of people who had never had jobs as engineers before. And I'm so proud of like what they've gone on to accomplish in their careers since then. And I just feel, I'm like, I knew it. Like I knew that these are fantastic engineers. I can tell. And like a lot of them, it's like, they're now engineering managers at like public companies, you know, they're like, have gone on to achieve these amazing things. And like, I just, yeah, number one, like kind of like the people that I've hired. Cause I feel like I can have such a big trajectory on their life by giving them their first engineering job or, or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's certainly my biggest accomplishment is what I'm most proud of. It's, and it's tricky cause it doesn't, there's a bunch of like, I did a bunch of press and stuff on hiring. And the reason I did that is because when I looked at this, I'm like, this is my greatest accomplishment. Like, it's not that many people, right? It's not that scalable. It's like, how many people can I possibly individually hire? And so I wanted to kind of spread the word so that it could have a bigger impact. Awesome. Um, I, I think you're the first guest I've had on the podcast that's talked about product market fit. Uh, and it's obviously su- something that's super important, but talk a little bit more about that and how, how you recognize it, how you work towards it, what that means for a business. Yeah, super passionate about it. Um, As you can tell from me mentioning it several times. (laughs) And so, yeah, and I really, I think um, it's definitely something like when startups pitch me, uh, I think the only question that I ask, well, there's two questions that I ask every startup that pitches me. Um, The first is, why are you raising venture capital? Which I always think the answer to is really interesting. And then the second is like, tell me about who your ideal customer is. Like, who is this product best for? And I think that's really interesting too. And for people to have a really precise idea of like, who is the person? And the reason why I think that is I think, you know, a lot of people design products for themselves, which is fine, um, unless there's not that many people in the world that are like you and have problems like you do. And then it's going to be hard to build that into a venture scale business. And so I think like um, kind of like teasing into the differences there is really interesting, but I don't measure product market fit in any kind of like interesting or novel way. I do it the same way everyone else does. Like, and, and it's the same way, like, and it's so interesting to see um, frankly chime because I think that like 
my experiences at Chime have been such an important lesson for me as a founder. Um, you know, it's like at Rocksbox, like they said like growing 20% month over month was good, right? And so we were growing 20% month over month. Um, but that was blood, sweat, and tears. That was like all of my best ideas and hardest work and late hours and like cranking, right? Chime's growth is just crazy. It feels like the opposite. It feels like no matter what we do, we cannot slow it down. Like we can't, there's nothing we can do to like slow down this like freight train of growth. And it's like, it is just, and so it's a very different feeling that like we're just being overrun by customers who are like demanding access to our products um, no matter what. And so being a, being a time is like a very good lesson to me in like product market fit and the power of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, importance of company culture, how you've been able to create and define that at your companies and what that's meant for them. Yeah, I think company culture is really, really interesting. Um, and it's something that has always been really important to me. You know, I think that like with rock spots, right? People are like, oh, are you so passionate about jewelry? And I'm, I'm not, you know, I mean, like I like jewelry but I'm not so <laughs> passionate about jewelry. Right. And like yeah. at Pinch, right. Like we sort of sorted out that like, this is an interesting idea to report rent payments. Bill that, like, am I so passionate about rent payments being on credit reports? Like, no, you know, I, like, I think there's a lot of like follow your passions. And for me, my passion is really building great companies. It's not about the products, you know, like I love, it's like, I love building things that people love. It's very satisfying. Um, and that's great. But like, I don't, you know, I don't care that much about any of this, <laughs> like from a product perspective, what I really care about is like creating amazing companies, right. And like building companies with a culture to last and like almost it's like giving, um, environments. It's like where my team members can be shaping the future direction of the product. Like, that's what I get excited. It's like, I don't, I don't want, it's like, I don't even want to think about the product at all. Like I want to make sure that my team has the resources to like develop the product and get into hands of customers and find new customers and like keep going. Um, so yeah, really, really love um, company culture. A lot of what we did at pinch was, was kind of different. So like we had um, the way that we got like really fantastic engineers was by being able to provide cultural benefits that, Google can't do and Facebook can't do, right? So like we had this one engineer, right? Like super senior engineer, he's been working for like 12 years um, and he didn't want to work on Tuesdays. Interesting. So we said, fine, don't That's worry about Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> like we can say, we're like, don't worry about Tuesdays. Like we'll just make it work. It was a small team. It was like, we just, it's, it's fine. Um, but Facebook would never not allow someone to work on Tuesdays. Like they can't. Right. So it's like, we got this incredible engineer who for like an affordable price and he was willing to take a huge pay cut in order to have that culture benefit. And we also had a lot of parents and the parents would do, um, they would work like 9am to 3pm and then like 8pm to 10pm. And we said, great. Sounds great. Yeah. Works great. Awesome. Uh, we're bumping up on like an hour here. So a couple more questions and then we'll wrap it up. Um, what individual has been the most inspiring in your life and why? Ooh, what individual has been the most inspiring? I don't know. I think, 
So I really love, um, like in terms of role models, I really love Catherine Graham, who's the CEO of the Washington Post for many years. Um, and that's kind of like who I look to when I think about, right? Like I just feel like it's like she had, she had deep expertise in the area and but like solicited, like ran the company in a very community way and solicited advisors. And I really like that balance. And that's something that I really strive for. Cool. All right, Maya, you and I are shooting a movie. What is the movie called? Uh, <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean we're shooting a movie? <laughs> we're making a movie. It's going to be in theaters nationwide. Yeah. What is the movie called? Always bring candy. Okay. I like it. <laughs> it's gonna be a, yeah, it's going to be about that. And it's going to be about being nice to people, which is my jam. Nice. I can get behind that. All right. You have an extra four hours in your day. How do you spend it? Ooh, extra four hours. Um... I would probably spend it, you know, I would spend it walking. I love, I love walking. I love walking. I spend a ton of time walking. I love walking. If I didn't have anything, like when I don't have anything on my to-do list, or even sometimes when I have a lot of things on my to-do list, I spend like a whole Saturday walking. Like I get, I get a coffee, walk around the city. Um, sometimes I listen to podcasts. Sometimes I don't. I kind of poke around. I look into stuff. Love walking. Nice. Any good podcasts or books that you would recommend to a young entrepreneur? Yes. So many good podcasts. So, um, invest like the best. I actually feel like, so it's targeted for investors, but I feel like it's very good to listen to for young entrepreneurs to kind of like see how investors think about things and, and what the right ways to like build big, strong businesses are. Um, invest like the best is great. Um, I listen to, a lot of relationship ones that I actually also think are very good. So like Esther Perel has a podcast called where should we begin, which is couples counseling, but I think is like so many good pieces of advice for how to be a good person to be in like a co-founder relationship with, or like any kind of relationship with. Um, and other good podcasts. Oh, and I'm listening to, I think it's called the dream right now, which is also great. It's about MLM marketing fascinating um all right we've got i've got one last question for you to close up but before before i get there uh for our for our listeners don't forget to connect with maya on twitter at maya b follow chime at chime uh again maya appreciate having you on uh this has been a blast uh any parting words anything you want to plug before we wrap up uh Anything I want to plug, listen to the Pitch Podcast. That's my last thing I want to plug. So it's like Shark Tank, but on a podcast form and has like actual venture backable businesses. Um, and I'm a guest investor on a couple episodes. So listen to the pitch. And I would say it's like quite realistic of what a pitch meeting is like with an investor. You're usually not pitching four at once. You're usually just pitching one-on-one, -on -one, but when I'm at, when I'm doing the pitch episodes, like I'm asking the same questions that I ask in one-on-one -on -one meetings. And so I think it's like 
write down those questions. It's like a great way to get ramped up on pitch meetings. Awesome. Yeah, I'll check it out. I hadn't heard of, heard of that before. Um, all right, last question. Stick around for a sec afterwards uh, so we can wrap up. Maya, what's your definition of entrepreneurship? Oh, my definition of entrepreneurship is the skills and activities that allow you to like manifest the change that you want to see in the world. So if you want the world to be different, like how are you going to get there? I think it can happen in this like very narrow type of like VC backed entrepreneurship that I've been doing, but I also think it can happen by starting nonprofits or just by working within your existing company to create change or by politics or like in so many different ways. I think like the skills of entrepreneurship apply to like so many different domains. Um, awesome. Well, I'll let you go. I'm sure you have other stuff you want to do today, like walk around. Actually, I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to stay far away from other people so they don't give me coronavirus, but try and go on a walk. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Maya. Um, hey, folks, it's Riley Farbaugh. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Young Founders Podcast. If you guys enjoyed this episode, if you got any value from it, please help spread the word. Post a screenshot to your Instagram story. Tell us what episodes you've been listening to on Twitter. Share an episode with your Facebook fam. Text someone a link to an episode if you think they benefit from it. And please leave us a review on the podcasting platform of your choice. Anything you guys can do to help us out is so helpful to us and very, very much appreciated. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Riley Farah. Find Nate at NT Bowl. You can also find every episode of the Young Founders podcast at theyoungfounders.com. We've also compiled a bunch of resources there to help you guys out on your journey towards creating a profitable, sustainable, and fulfilling business for yourselves. And if there's anything Nate and I can do to help you guys out along the way, please reach out to us. We both love connecting with other young entrepreneurs and we're happy to help in any way that we can. Also, if you think you or someone you know would be a good fit to be a guest on the podcast, let us know that also. We're always looking for cool new guests. You can DM us or go to theyoungfounders.com slash apply and fill out the short form there. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Young Founders Podcast. We'll see you next time.